Well, good morning. I hope you never lose looking forward to being together on, with the saints, whether it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or any time in between. It's good to come together and to encourage one another by our presence, by our words, uh, just by sharing time together. So I appreciate that this morning for sure. There's a, a competition on the, the History Channel, competition television show, called Forged, by, Forged in Fire. And so this is a pretty cool show. I've only seen it a couple of times. But in each episode, there are four bladesmiths who compete. And so they, they forge these weapons, these bladed weapons, and the winner walks away with a lot of money. Now, if I was designing this show, instead of selecting the best weapon, I would have them make those weapons, and then let's see which one works the best, and the winner gets to go home with the money. But they didn't ask me to do that, which would probably not make it on the TV, but it would be higher ratings. But they've used a quote that, uh, that I've heard before, and I've even used, and certainly you have too, doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result, is what? Insanity. Yeah, we've heard, probably heard that before in that definition. So I thought about that with our look through Hebrews 11 and the background from which these examples of faith had come. And so you can list ad nausea, person after person who exemplified the type of faith by which God calls us to live. And yet the author of Hebrews selects these particular seemingly random group of people to kind of lift up to us and say, here is what faith looks like. Here's what God means by faith. And so Hebrews 11 and verse 32, we come to a passage that says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And so he says, I don't have time to go on about all these specific details. But the good thing is, I do. And so we're moving forward looking at a few of these folks. But these are representative in this, in each display's obedience and in spite of uncertainty. And so we've talked about before, faith, to live by faith is to live with is not to live with certainty, but rather to follow God in the face of uncertainty. It's following God anyway. When we don't have all the answers, when we don't know where the finish line is, when we don't know how this is going to end or how we're going to get through it. And so this word assurance that is used here is when we live by faith and we show this trust in God's promises, the assurance of God's promises before and until they're fully experienced. That's what assurance is. And so the Hebrew people seem to be animating this definition of insanity. Scripture tells us time and time again, they welcomed and worshipped these idols, idols of the foreign kingdoms who were handling in charge of the land, taking over the land in which they lived and brought them into their lives. And so God would use these foreign kingdoms to oppress and punish 
the Israelites, because of this disobedience, they would cry out to God for help. And God, being merciful and gracious and loving, would respond. And He would raise up a deliverer and lead them to freedom. And then after a period of time, the people would once again lift up these foreign gods, these foreign idols as objects of worship. And God would use a foreign kingdom to punish them. And then the cycle would continue over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. Same action same response. And God was never more than a generation away from being joined in His rightful place as supreme with one of these, these fake gods, these foreign gods, these idols in the hearts of the Hebrew people. And so they never denied God. They didn't completely deny Jehovah God, but they failed to keep their hearts free from the influences of the world around them. And so it's called syncretism. And so it's this blending of beliefs and practices here. It's like a recipe. When you're, when you're making something, you know, you need a smidgen of this and a dollop of that uh, to get it all put together. They wanted a smidgen of God, but a dollop of Baal. And that was the primary God at that time. They just don't seem to have ever severed the tie with these foreign gods going back to their time in Egypt when they were living there under slavery. And so the book of Judges comes out and it says that the people refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. This calls it right out. This was evil practice, and they were stubborn in how they were living their lives. And Scripture sums this up in Judges 21 and verse 25. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Insanity, right? We, we saw last week how Gideon was called by God to deliver the people from the hand of the Midianites. And today we're going to look at probably one of the most obscure names in this list in Hebrews here that we find. In fact, he's overshadowed in our Bible, and I think probably to some degree in our Bible stories, by a woman named Deborah, whom he kind of comes alongside of or is called up by. The Scripture tells us she was a prophetess of the Israelites. And so by description, she is one of the judges that we've talked about and, and these that, that, that God spoke to and directed to handle the disputes of the people. And she was respected and responsible for influencing the, the direction and decisions of the people as they came to her. And yet, the writer of Hebrews presents to us someone else. Someone else here, the most unlikely of heroes, who partnered with Deborah to carry out the will of God. Walking with God by faith. And so we're going to travel back to Judges chapter 4 this morning. Before the time of Gideon, we're kind of going back before last week even, and see why this nobody named Barak, could be elevated to the same level of example as Moses, or as Abraham, or as even Gideon, as, as weak and nobody as he was. So Judges chapter 4, and beginning in verse 1. The Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight after Ehud's death. Ehud was another judge. The Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Canaan, who ruled in Hazor. The general of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth, Hagoim. And the Israelites called, cried out for help to the Lord because Sisera had 900 chariots with iron-rimmed wheels and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And so we see that Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidus, let me get back to where I need to be here, was leading Israel at that time. She would sit under the date palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the Ephraimite hill country the Israelites would come up to her to have their dispute settled. Now she summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. And she said to him, Is it not true that the Lord God of Israel is commanding you? 
Go, march to Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun. I will bring Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to you at the Kishon River, along with his chariots and huge army. I will hand him over to you. And it's not for dramatic effect here that Deborah tells Barak that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one who commands you. You remember that syncretism. That definition of syncretism. The Canaanites who had been oppressing the Israelites for these 20 years, they worshipped these collection of gods, this group of gods, gods in whom the Israelites had kind of taken a liking to, thereby creating this cycle of obedience and, and disobedience by following God's will as God of creation, the only true God. And so if Deborah had just approached Barak and says, God wants you to go here, and do this, he would have asked, which God? Which one are you talking about here? It didn't matter that Deborah was known to be judge administering the law of Moses, the God of creation to the, to the people. Because for Barak and much of the Israelites, the lines were blurry. They became real blurry. Boy, it's different than it is today, right? We don't have any blurry lines when it comes to who God is and what He's all about. So it mattered... Who is sending you because it mattered what power or what protection they might bestow on you when they're asking you to do this dangerous thing. And so Sisera was this mighty warrior commander of the Canaanites. His his regiment of the Canaanite army was brutal. This was a bad dude, big bad dude. And so he had these iron chariots that presented an, an armament equivalent to our modern day tanks. That's what this would have been like for these foot soldiers of the Israelites. Imagine 900 tanks rolling up to the battle line here. You know, It's an ominous thought and an ominous sound and an ominous sight when you're asked to go fight them. And this also, the last time the Israelites fought was like 20 years ago. Think about this. The youngest man who would have any battle experience would have been at least 40 years old now. Think about that. So is it any wonder then that Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I ain't going. (laughs) I'm not going without you. And God didn't chastise Gideon, you remember, for wanting a sign of what was being asked from him. Hey, God, is this really you? If it's really you, then, then give me this sign. He didn't chastise him for that. I mean, where's God been for the last 20 years? How do I know that he cares? Does he even still care? And so Barak is not a coward for demanding that Deborah go with him. It makes me think of Ananias. And we jump over into Acts and you think about Ananias who was tasked by Jesus. Hey, I need you to confront this man Saul and you preach my gospel to him. You tell him who I am and what he needs to do in order to fall under my lordship. Saul was hunting down these Christians and, and watching over and consenting to their, their murders. And so Ananias was like, hang on a second. Now, you mean, you mean the guy that's, that's persecuting all of us and, and, and making sure that a lot of us are killed? You mean that guy? You want me to confront him? <laughs> that's what he's thinking. And so John Wayne once said that courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Well, I would kind of expand that to say faith is not the absence of doubt and fear. Faith is acknowledging the presence of doubt and fear and moving forward in obedience anyway. It's doing it anyway, not blindly, 
but based on the assurance of a faithful God. And so faith is recognizing who the enemy is and then standing up and doing what's right, doing the right thing anyway. So living by faith is turning the other cheek instead of turning to a harsher response. And living by faith is loving your enemies and praying for those who intentionally or unintentionally hurt you. Because see, the enemy is not only among us. The enemy is within us. This Paul would go on to write in Romans chapter 7 and verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I love God's law. I love His Word. I love His teaching. But I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me? It's a war within and without. And so when we're surrounded by evil on all sides, who will rescue me from this body of death? And so it takes courage to saddle up and ride into a situation where you know you're going to be resisted because of your beliefs. And so Barak tells Deborah that he'll do this, but she has to go with him. And so if this is truly God's will, then having this woman who's been administering God's law with him, well, that's affirmation for him. He feels better because I know you've kind of been doing God's thing, so if i got you with me, then surely God's not going to let anything happen to you. And yet there's a caveat to this request. In Judges 4 and verse 9, she said, Yeah, I'll go with you, but you will not gain fame on the expedition that you're undertaking. For the Lord will turn Sisera over to a woman. Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Notice she doesn't say, you wimp, get out there and act like a man. She doesn't say that. There's none of that. Nor does she bring a word from God that, hey, look, since you kind of you seem to be hesitant, this deal is off. Just forget it. Forget we ever ask you. She doesn't say that either. No, see, Barak is God's choice. And God knows who he is. God knows the struggles that he has and will have. And so Deborah's going to lend him the moral support that he craves. Because God's will is going to be accomplished to deliver the people. That's not going to be interrupted in any way. If you remember back a few years, there was a lot of information that came out about the, the, the Navy Special Forces after they eliminated Osama bin Laden back in May 1st, 2011. And so this was the moment that the nation had been waiting for. Ten years of this operation. And I don't know, thousands of people that span were involved in this, this operation to, to this moment when it comes down to one person who fires a fatal shot that allows a nation to finally exhale. And so in spite of all the efforts of all the people involved, the person who is connected to the finger that pulled the trigger is kind of lifted up a little bit higher than everyone else is involved. You want your team to win. No question about it. But it's also pretty cool if you score the winning touchdown or you kick the winning field goal or you're the one that makes the game-winning interception. So Barak was moving forward by faith, but it wasn't without doubt. And so like with Thomas, when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, you know, the disciples are talking about having seen Jesus. Man, can you believe this? We saw Jesus. And Thomas struggles to believe this because he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to them the first time. He didn't believe it was really him. Are you sure you guys hadn't just kind of cooked this up in your imagination, wishful thinking, until Jesus appeared to him too? What did we read earlier in John twenty twenty nine? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen me 
and yet have believed. And Thomas was overjoyed, finally seeing what he had trouble believing. And so Jesus says that those with trouble seeing, who move forward believing anyway, they're the ones who are going to be truly blessed. Now, Barak is going to enjoy the benefits of God's victory. God's going to win this battle, and he's going to enjoy the, the, the victory that comes with it. But it seems that his comfort is more in the presence of Deborah than the assurance of God. And because of that, this fuller blessing is not going to be possible. So someone else is going to get credit for the military victory. And nevertheless, he was willing to be used by God, and he moves forward in faith. So Judges 4 and verse 10, Barak summoned men from Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah went up with him as well. So Sisera hears about him gathering these Israelite troops at Mount Tabor. And so Sisera moves his 900 chariots, all of his troops, down into the valley. And so you think about, he's got all these heavy iron chariots. You can't fight in the mountains. You've got to fight in the valley. And so he takes them to the valley where the terrain is more level and the advantage is his to kind of roll over and surround these, these pitiful Israelites. And in verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, Spring into action, for this is the day the Lord is handing Sisera over to you. Has the Lord not taken the lead? And Barak quickly went from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera, all his chariotry and all his army with the edge of the sword. Sisera jumped out of his chariot and ran away on foot. So Sisera runs fast and hard as he can all the way to neutral territory where it just so happens, just so happens, right? Wink, wink, (laughs) that an ally of the Canaanite king is is, is living there. And so he finds his dwelling. Well, the, the man is gone, this ally is gone, but his wife is still home, is jailed. And so she happens to be home and she says, hey, come on in, buddy. It's all good. It's all good. Come on in and rest. And so Sisera is exhausted because he's fled this battle. And so before he can relax, he tells Jael, he says, look, you keep watch. And if anybody comes up and knocks on the door, you tell them if they're looking for me, you tell them I'm not here. And so she agrees and Sisera relinquishes and he passes out cold from his exhaustion. So then what does Jael do? She tiptoes up to where he's sleeping, and she hammers a tent peg through his temple so far it goes into the ground beneath his head. So Obama ben Sisera is dead. And so now Barak was chasing Sisera, and Jael went out to welcome him. And she said to him, come here, come here, and I will show you the man you're searching for. And he went with her into the tent, and there he saw Sisera sprawled out dead with the tent peg in his temple. That day, God humiliated King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. Israel's power continued to overwhelm King Jabin of Canaan until they did away with him. So yes, Deborah was responsible for getting Barak to carry out this plan. And yes, Barak had to agree to do it. But Scripture makes it very clear it was God who humiliated him and God who defeated this wicked king. It was God who heard Israel's cry, and it was God who rescued them. And so like Paul Harvey used to say, now the rest of the story. Because when we read over into chapter 5, we get kind of a, a fuller version here. You get one of the oldest recorded Israelite poems, second only to the Song of Moses. And so this Song of Deborah, as it's known as, gives us some details that takes this story of Barak and Sisera from 1080p to 4K. 
So it's really going to define it for us. So let's look in chapter 5 and verse 1. And so as they sing and recall this battle, on that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this victory song. When the leaders took the lead in Israel, when the people answered the call to war, praise the Lord. Now the people could have turned back to God any day for 20 years, any day. Faith moves forward and they had become weak in their faith. But when it finally happened, when they finally turned back, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so here, O kings, pay attention, O rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord God of Israel, not to Baal. I'm not going to sing to Asherah. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The Lord God is alone. And so he says, O Lord, when you departed from Seir, when you marched from Edom's plains, the earth shook, the heavens poured down, the clouds poured down rain, the mountains trembled before the Lord, the God of Sinai, before the Lord God of Israel. Why was God punishing Israel? Because of idolatry. Because they had forgotten the Shema. They had forgotten Deuteronomy 6. They had forgotten, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they had lifted other gods up, not just beside him, but above him. And so he was punishing them for idolatry. The Canaanite main god was Baal. And they proclaimed this Baal as the god of all things water. Get this now. Baal, the god of all things water. Yeah, he's a storm god, but he's also the god of, of rain. He's the God of sleet, the God of snow, the God of hail, of dew. And so when the battle began, it was Yahweh, the the God of Israel, who used the very thing the Canaanites worshipped and revered to defeat them. The rain. He brought the rain and the storm. And what happens in a torrent of rain when it comes quickly in a valley near a river? It floods, right? You're going to have flash flooding. Flash flooding and a whole lot of mud. What's Sisera driving? Iron chariots. They weren't four-wheel drive chariots. They sank in the mud. That's why Sisera abandoned his chariot. That's why he had to flee. He couldn't move his chariot any further. He had to flee on foot. Seems like Baal got a little mixed up, right? You brought rain at the wrong time on the wrong people, huh? See, life had been miserably tough for Israelites up to this point. It says in verse 6, as the song continues, In the days of Shamgar, a judge, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, caravans disappeared. Travelers had to go on winding side roads. Warriors were scarce. They were scarce in Israel until you arose, Deborah, until you arose as a motherly protector in Israel. God chose new leaders. Then fighters appeared in the city gates. But I swear not a shield or spear could be found among 40 military units in Israel. See, people had stopped traveling. They stopped traveling. And if they did, they took the back roads. They they, they traveled at night when they couldn't be seen by the wicked Canaanites. It had been a long time since they even attempted to fight for themselves. You couldn't even find a sword tucked away in the attic. The Canaanites had, had confiscated everything over this time. They disarmed them. But when God raised up new leaders, when He raised up a new vision, Deborah and Barak, leaders who would lead by faith, 
Then the survivors came down to the mighty ones. The Lord's people came down to me as warriors. You remember last week we saw how it it seems that, that Gideon's father was also devoted to idolatry until Gideon tore down his father's idols. And so instead of acting incensed by all of this, what did Gideon's father do? He was kind of, it emboldened him to turn back to God, to stick up for Gideon when some other men were wanting to kill him for doing that. And so it kind of rekindled his father's faith. You know, sometimes all anyone is waiting for is someone else to make the first move. And so who in your life Who in your life today may be waiting for you to make the first move, to take the first step that they need to come to faith in God? Who might that be? And so just as God had declared, it was not Barak, but rather in verse 24, the most rewarded of women should be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. She should be the most rewarded of women who live in tents. Not just the women, but as we read these Years, centuries later, she's the most revered in this period for what she was able to do. She finally drove the final nail. And sin does not occur in a vacuum. Actions and consequences reside together. And so sometimes we suffer because of the choices we make. And sometimes we have to suffer consequences from the choices that others make. And so through the window... Through the window she looked. Who did? Sisera's mother. Sisera's mother cried out through the lattice. Why is his chariot so slow to return? Why are the hoofbeats of his chariot horses delayed? And the wisest of her ladies answered, Well, indeed she even thinks to herself, No doubt. No doubt. They're they're gathering, dividing the plunder. Don't worry. A girl or two for each man to rape. Sisera's grabbing up colorful cloth. He's grabbing up colorful embroidered cloth. Don't worry about it. Two pieces of colorful embroidered cloth for the neck of the plunderer. That's probably what's going on. Yes, but the Lord God delivered Israel that day. But it was not without pain and suffering. It was not without pain and suffering, both on the battlefield of the valley and on the battlefield of the heart. There was pain and suffering. It says, may all your enemies perish like this, O Lord. But may those who love you shine like the rising sun at its brightest. And the land had rest for 40 years. You know, if one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result that not only were the Israelites rightly diagnosed, but so is everyone who would continue to go against the Lord God of heaven. And as we, people of of faith, as we put our faith in Him, can we let faith guide our lives, believing in His enduring Word? We must do that. His Word calls us to put away whatever idols in our life. Greed, self-reliance, busyness, the God of pleasure, anything that competes with God for preeminence in our heart is an idol. And so even in the face of uncertainty and fear, we must move forward obeying God's teaching with the assurance that He owns the victory and that we will reap the reward. That's what He's promised us. Maybe not today. Maybe not today. But certainly in eternity. There is a whole lot 
that we don't know about Barak. But what we do know is enough. We know enough about him. He was just an ordinary guy. There was nothing special about him. He was called by God to lead an extraordinary task. To be a vessel through whom God was going to crush evil and save his people. And Barak allowed God to use him in spite of his fear, in spite of his uncertainty. And it's this faith that brought him to the mind of the writer of Hebrews while he was lifted up on that page for us. And perhaps it also came to mind how the meaning of the name Barak is blessed. His name means blessed. And he, like us, believed that even though the big picture remained out of focus, some would say that's insane, that he believed and followed God anyway. But in God's eyes, it's not. It's worthy of great honor. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And God lifted up another ordinary man, ordinary flesh, as His Son put on flesh and came to this earth and lived as a nobody from a no-name town the least in all of His clan. And yet He spoke the divine words of God that all who come to Me shall have everlasting life. And that takes a step of faith. How do I know? How do I know? How can I be sure? It's called faith. And it's hard. God has preserved this record for us. He has lifted up His Word for us so that we can see the lives and how God has worked through others who wrestled with that same thought. How do I know that it's the Lord God of Israel? He is God of His Word. And His Word is holy. And His Word calls us to be holy. And in order to be holy, we've got to live by faith. And this morning, Perhaps you're struggling with that. You're struggling with this decision. Do I stay on this path? Even though at every turn it seems like I've got an iron chariot sitting right in front of me. And the rain's not coming yet. And sometimes we feel like we're under the wrong cloud and the rain is here and it's on us. What we don't realize is that God may just be watering us in the hardest moment of our lives so that He can blossom us into the most beautiful flower, the most beautiful seed for His kingdom to spread the message of Jesus to those around us. And this morning as we're gathered together, if you can use the prayers of this body, these brothers and sisters who were assembled this morning by faith, we want to pray with you and for you. If you are ready to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, to make Him Lord primarily, you've got to lift Him above all else. No other gods before or above Him or beside Him. And let Him be King of your life. Will you be baptized this morning for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of God's Spirit and the promise of eternal life? And then encourage one another as we walk each day by faith, living by faith. We can help in any way this morning as we stand and sing this song. Will you come?